If we please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be looking at chapter 44, verses 1 through 5, but I'm actually going to start the reading at chapter 43, verse 22, to give us the context. But also, as I mentioned earlier, please have your Bibles also open to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and that's found on page 909 and 910 in your pew Bible, because we'll look at that also during the sermon. So just a reminder of the context of where we are in Isaiah in chapters 39 to 66. See, although Isaiah wrote these words in the late 8th century, early 7th century BC, he wasn't writing for his contemporaries, but rather the original intended audience of these chapters were the Jewish exiles in Babylon in the 6th century BC, over 150 years after Isaiah's death. And as we discussed last week, these people had been removed from their homes. They had been separated from their families, forced to assimilate into a, a pagan culture, forced to, uh, to, to abandon their identity, our identity as God's people, forced to endure seeing their God blasphemed. And humanly speaking, humanly speaking, they didn't even know if they would continue as a people separated for God, for God's service. And as you can imagine, they were, they were discouraged, they were defeated, they needed hope. They needed encouragement. And through the writing of Isaiah, God provides comfort and encouragement to his people. So hear these words, starting in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned. And your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Now chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Let's pray. Father, your word amazes us. Your word contains promises that we really can't comprehend. We are dull. We are, we are uh, distracted. We don't recognize the amazing promises that you give us in your word. And Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will change that. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts, open my hearts, open my mouth to be able to speak your words. And Father, I pray that we will have an encounter with you. We will see you. We will see the amazing promises And that you will encourage us by this. And you will change us. You will change us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. 
Amen. We may have heard it said that Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. Always one generation away from extinction. And what this means is that Christianity is a faith that must be passed on, passed on to our children, passed on to our grandchildren. And you may have seen some grim statistics about the steady decline of Christianity in this country over the last 50 years. For example, in the 1970s, over 90% of Americans, 90% of Americans self-identified as Christian. Now, of course, not all of them were born again. We know that they use a much broader term, but again, 90% identified as Christian. You know what that number is today? It's a little more than 60%. 30% less. Again, we're talking only about those who, who, who self-identify as Christians. We're not talking about the number actually attend church. Even once a month, that's significantly lower. But those who self-identify as Christians. And the numbers get even worse when you look at younger people. Of those who are in their 20s, only 50%, only one in two, actually identify as Christian. And one-third of Americans under 40 who were raised in Christian homes, one-third of those under 40 who were raised in Christian homes no longer follow the faith, no longer identify as Christians. And even scarier, as I know kids personally who I taught in Sunday school 15 years ago, kids who went to the same school as Jessica and Sarah, Kids whose parents I know personally, I know that they are strong Christians. And these kids have walked away from the faith. These kids are living in open rebellion against what was taught to them by their parents, the values, the biblical values in which they were raised. And as parents and as grandparents, this terrifies us. We fear personally for our children. We worry about their souls. We fear that our our children and our grandchildren can be eternally lost. But we also fear for our nation. We fear for our culture. We fear the loss of our rich Christian tradition. For example, in the Church of of England, which is the the, the foundation, the fountainhead of the Anglican tradition, these statistics blew my mind. So the median church attendance in the Church of England, so half of them have more, but half of them have less. Median church attendance is less than 22 adults. I mean, we're a small church, but we're more than that. That's kind of like what our, uh, what our evening services are. But that, that, that itself wasn't really what got me. That, that, that's small, but they're small and mighty churches. I know churches that size that are still strong. The thing that really got my attention is that that was 22 adults. You know how many children were in this medium-sized church? One. One child under 17 in these churches. That means that half of the churches in the Church of England have no children. So if Christianity is one generation away from extinction, things don't look too good for the, for the Church of England. And these numbers and these trends, they worry us. They worry us about the future of our faith. And we wonder, what can we do? We wonder, who is to blame? Is it the secular schools? Is it the, the secular culture that drives children away from faith? Is it our lax parenting? Is it our hypocrisy that drove children away from Christianity? And as bad as, as things are in this country, in the United States, or in England, what was facing God's people during the exile in Babylon, which we're reading about today, was far worse. Far worse. See, the people, they were removed from Jerusalem. They were removed from having access to the temple. This is where they performed their religious services. This is where they met with God. And they were forced to assimilate, assimilate into the, the Babylonian culture. 
And we see this very clearly if we read through the book of Daniel. In the first book chapter of the book of Daniel, it talks about these Hebrew exiles that came. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the first thing they were done when they were brought to Babylon is they changed their names. Their names associated with God, and they were given new names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. And their names were, were focused on God. God was in their names, and they were focused on the Babylonian gods. You see that they're changing their names. But not only that, Daniel and his companions, they were educated, educated in the Babylonian ways. They were indoctrinated, so they identified with Babylonians. They didn't think like Hebrews anymore. They thought like Babylonians. They spoke Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew. And this was the goal. See, this was the goal of the exile. What they did is they took the conquered people and they moved them out of their land and they interspersed them in different places. And the reason they did this is what they wanted to do is they wanted to have cultural unanimity. They wanted to have a unity in in the empire. And what this did is by by eliminating the the cultural and the religious diversity of the people, it it brought stability. They were no longer fighting over, over religion or culture. It brought stability. But the explicit purpose was really was to eradicate the faith of God's people. And this is what they were facing. The very real possibility that they would cease to exist as a distinct people. A people focused for God. A focused on worshiping Yahweh. And to make this worse, the people knew that they were the ones to blame. They knew that it was that their covenant unfaithfulness to Yahweh led them to this exile that they were suffering. And we saw this in in chapter 43, verses 22 and and following. And this unfaithfulness may have started off small. First, they start off by just neglecting God. They neglect the obligations, the covenant obligations they had. Basically, what they did is they took God for granted. They, They focused not on God, but they focused on themselves. They didn't take God seriously. They didn't, they didn't give him their best. They kept their best for themselves. They sought to impress the outsiders. They sought to impress the pagans rather than be concerned what God thought about them. They wanted to be like everyone else. And they chased after false gods just like everyone else. They rejected the living God. See, God wasn't real to them. What was real to them was the idols, idols that they can see and touch. Even though they knew these were lifeless idols, they were powerless idols, and they rebelled against God, they sinned against God, and now they were facing the terrible consequences of the sin. Consequences that could actually lead to the end of their religion, the end of their existence as a people set apart for God himself. And my friends, if we're honest, as a Christian church, when we look at the trends and and we look at the statistics that show this rapid decline in Christianity among younger generations, if we're honest, we know that the primary blame is not the schools, it's not the colleges, it's not the liberals, it's not the secularists, it's not entertainment. The primary blame falls on us. It falls on Christians. See, just like God's people who were sent into exile, we too, we too as Christians, we have taken God for granted. We, too, don't take him seriously. We focus more on ourselves than we focus on God. We don't give him our best. We don't give him the best of our time. We don't give him the best of our talent. We don't give him the best of our treasure. Often, we don't give him anything at all. And my friends, we're paying the price. 
These statistics that I just said, these are, these are the consequences of our sinful neglect of our gracious God. In fact, these statistics really are the natural consequence, the natural result of our sin. You see, children can detect hypocrisy. They hate anything that is phony. So if we tell them that God is real, if we tell them that Jesus is real, but if we live in a way, a way that it completely ignores this fact, our children see it. Our children can sense that we do not believe what we say we believe. Now think about this for a second. If we truly believe, if we truly believe that we are sinful and that we deserve eternal damnation, we spend the eternity in the torments of hell, and if we truly believe that Jesus Christ, he saved us, he saved us from this most horrible fate imaginable, if we truly believe this, this would change our lives. It could not not change our lives. We would be filled. If we thought we were, we were heading for death, I mean, just think if you, if you thought you had a, a, a terminal illness and you, you were certain you were going to die tomorrow and you found out that there was a cure that can save you, you it would be completely change us. But we've been given so much more than that. It would fill us with so much overwhelming gratitude, overwhelming joy, that we really could not help but spontaneously burst into joy and into, into praise of, of Jesus every moment of every day. And that's what we've been giving. See, Jesus offers this to us freely. This is what we confess. This is what we all believe. If you ask us what we believe, that's what we would believe. But do we really believe? And all Jesus asks of us, right? Jesus gives us this free. But he asks for us to set apart one day in seven. One day in seven to worship him, to focus on him, to, to, to put aside our worldly cares, our worldly concerns, and focus on him. But what do we say? We say, oh, I'm too tired. You know, you know I, I work all day and then you know, uh, five days a week and then on Saturday i got to do all my housework. You know, Sunday's the day for me. I get to sleep late. It's the day that I can do fun stuff. You know, it's the day that I can go to dog shows or go to the beach or play golf or play sports. I don't really have time to give one day in seven to Jesus. You know, I just don't feel like I, I can't do it. What about our treasure? Do we give our money to God's kingdom? Or do we keep every single dime for ourselves? Right, I just need that new car. I can't afford to give money to, to, to God. I need that vacation. I need that latest gadget. I can't tithe. I can't support the work of the kingdom. I just don't have enough. You know, statistics tell us that only 4%, only 4% of evangelical Christians give a tithe. Only 4%, 10% of their income. And a large proportion, much more than that, don't give a dime. Don't give a cent to God's work. Do we really believe? Do we really believe that Jesus saves us from hell? Do we really believe what we profess? So if you want to tell what a person believes, look at how they spend their money. Look at their checkbook. Steve Jobs, he was at one time the world's richest man. Steve Jobs professed to be a Buddhist. He didn't believe in God. And barring a deathbed conversion, Steve Jobs at this very moment is suffering the torments of hell. And I can guarantee you, I guarantee you, if Steve Jobs now had access to his more than $10 billion fortune, he would gladly give every dime just to get one hour out of the torments that he is now experiencing. But 95% of Christians, 95% of Christians who have been spared not just one hour, but an eternity in the torments of hell. And even more than that, we are promised the unimaginable joys of heaven of an eternity which we can't even comprehend, where there's no sickness, where each day is better than the next. When we see God face to face, we are guaranteed to that. But 95% can't give God a mere 10% of their income as a thank you, as an acknowledgement that he owns it all. 
Do we really believe what we say we believe? Is it any wonder that our children can detect our hypocrisy? Do we live any differently when they see us in the world? Do we live the same way as the worldly people? Is it any wonder that they can see our hypocrisy? Why should they follow us if we don't believe it's real? If we don't believe it real, why are they going to believe it real? See, our actions show that we don't believe it's real. So why should they follow this faith? Especially when following our faith now has a social cost. Before, back in the 70s, there was no social cost. It was actually beneficial to say you're Christian. They probably weren't Christians. But now it carries a social cost. So why would they want to follow this faith if it's not real to us? And if we're honest, we know we're to blame. If we're honest, we know that we, just like the the Israelites in exile, we have rebelled against God. We have sinned against God. And now we're facing the terrible consequences of our sin. Consequences that could lead to the end of our religion. Right? If these trends continue, there will be no Christians. Very few Christians. That's what we see in Europe. Very few Christians. Only 2% or so in Europe. Which we used to be completely Christian. So, is this where it's going to happen? And it's bad enough to see this decline in Christianity, this turning away from, from the faith by the younger generations. It's even worse to know that we are to blame for this. Christians are to blame. And this is the background. This is the background we know. I know you're probably all discouraged here and say, why did I even come to church this way to hear this? But this is the background we need to see the amazing beauty of these five verses that we're looking at this morning. These are the amazing promise that is given in these verses. So look at verses 3 to 5 and hear these again. This is the Lord speaking to these, these people who are, who are feeling just the same way. They know they blew it, and they think that their, their religion is about to, 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 they're going to be eradicated. These are the words that the Lord gave them. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, upon your children, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one, one of your children, will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. See, these verses are talking about God pouring out his Holy Spirit on their children, on their offspring, blessing their descendants. See, they were fearful that they would fade away. They fearful they wouldn't have any descendants. They certainly wouldn't be, be faithful. They were afraid they were going to be assimilated into the Babylonian Empire. But God promises them the exact opposite. In verse 4, he compares the descendants. They will spring up like willows by the streams. I don't know if you're familiar with willows. I remember we had a couple of willows in our house in New Jersey. And one thing you know about willows is they love where it's wet. They just soak up the water and they grow. They grow quickly. They grow fast. And I think what this is saying, Isaiah is saying, the children of Israel, they will grow like that. They will grow quickly. They will grow fast. They will be plentiful. But even more important than their number is their faith. And we see this in verse 5. It says they will not deny the faith. They will not identify with the Babylonians. They will identify with the Lord's. They will say, I am the Lord's. They will identify with Jacob, with God's people. They will identify with the Lord and with his people. This is the description of the spiritual awakening. This is the description of of the spiritual revival that is promised among God's people. And we need to clearly understand this awakening is all of God. It's, it's It's not because of anything that God's people have done. In fact, all they did was sin. They caused a problem. But verses 1 and 2, this shows us God's reason, why God did what he did. So take a look at verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 starts with but now. Remember if you were here last week, we looked at this but now. But now indicates a transition. It indicates a change from the previous verses. 
See, the previous verses, we saw Israel's guilt for this situation. They were paying the penalty for their sin against God. But now, but now is a transition. It's transition from a time of judgment to a time of grace. But now, hear, O Jacob. Remember the covenant name. He's reminding of the covenant name. O Jacob, my servant. A reminder of what they're called to do. They were called, they were saved to serve God, to serve Yahweh. My servant whom I have chosen. Here God reminds the people that they have been chosen. They didn't choose him, he chose them. They are his people, not because of anything they have done, anything worthy in them, them, no, but only because of God, of what God has done, because of who God is. And you see how uh, some people worry about that. They, they hate that. But don't you see how secure that is? If I chose God, if my security is only because of how much I love God, I change. I, I'm weak. But if it's because of God, because God loves me, God can never change. You see how much so much more secure because we are chosen rather than because we chose. In verse 2, God makes it clear that he knows them, that he really knows them. He made them. He formed them in the womb. They are his. And he says he will help them. How can you be more, more confident than that? And God knows they're fearful. He knows that they are weak. He knows they fear that they may cease to be a people. In the second part of verse 2, God tells them not to fear. He reminds them again that they are his servants. He reminds them again that they have been called, called to a special purpose. He reminds them that they are chosen by him. And then he refers to his people as Jeshurun. We don't see that much. As a matter of fact, we only see, the only other place we see this is in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's referred to in God's people. And what it actually means is upright one. And I'm sure they did not feel upright, right? They were sinners. They, they, they were pretty discouraged. They were in exile. And in and of themselves, they were not upright. But what this is telling them is that they were made upright. They were made by their covenant-keeping God. They were made upright. It's totally undeserved. It's totally all of grace. And the only reason, the only reason that they can be upright is seen in chapter 43, verse 25. And here the Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And why? For my own sake, not anything you've done. And I will remember, I will not remember your sins. See, the hope was not in themselves. For us, our hope is not in us. If, if it was in us, we would be in big trouble. It was not in what they deserved. Our hope is in Christ. It's in who he is. He is the one. He is the one who blots out our transgression. He blots out our transgression by his precious blood shed on the cross for us. We deserve only judgment. But Christ takes that judgment on himself. Christ pays that penalty that our sin deserves. And as such, what we receive is grace. We can receive forgiveness. See, Christ takes what we deserve, which is an eternity in hell, and he gives us what he has earned, and that is eternal life. That is the gospel. And ultimately, the cross, the cross is the reason for the promises given in these five verses, because of God's blotting out the transgressions, because of, of Christ's suffering and punishment on the cross. In our place, we have the promises given in these verses. We have the promises that God will pour out his spirit, not only on us, but on our offspring. We have the promise that our children, both our natural children, our spiritual children by faith, will be numerous and will be faithful to the Lord. What, what, an amazing, what an amazing promise. But we need to be careful here. We need to be careful or we misunderstand what this message is saying. We need to understand this passage is not 
directly speaking to us. It's not given to us directly. These verses were not written to us directly. They were given to the exiles in Babylon. And it would be a misapplication for us to, to claim them just as they're given for us and say these mean that, that I am going to have, my, my children are going to have the Spirit poured out on them. See, the fulfillment of these verses is not seen in a, in a great reversal of these statistics that I just mentioned about the decline of Christianity. They're not seen in the promises of another great awakening among our children and grandchildren. <clears throat> no, the fulfillment of these verses and other verses, such as Joel chapter 2, with respect to God's pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people, the fulfillment is seen at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And that's why I asked you, if you would, just flip over to Acts chapter 2, because we're going to look at that for a few moments. See, what we do is we must view the passage that we're looking at in Isaiah in light of its New Testament fulfillment in order to see its application for us. And this is just a general rule in principle. We've got to be careful looking at promises that are given to God's people in the Old Testament and thinking that they apply one-to-one to us. No, we have to see them through the lens of the New Testament. doesn't mean they don't apply to us, but we have to see them through the lens of the New Testament. So let's take a look at this, Acts chapter 2. This is Pentecost. This is where God pours out his Holy Spirit on his church. And this is God's New Testament people. See, these are both the the physical and the spiritual descendants of his people Israel. So at this point, the church was almost entirely Jewish. So the physical descendants, but it's spiritual descendants also because they have been born again. They They have been transformed. And because God was doing a new thing, God provides a physical manifestation among the spiritual reality of what he's doing. So the, the spiritual reality of pouring out his Holy Spirit. So what we see is these physical manifestations. We see the, 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 the mighty rushing wind sound. We see the divided tongues that have come down on the people. And then we see the people given this gift to speak into, in other languages. And some people hearing the disciples speaking in these unknown languages, they thought the disciples were drunk. And they said these people are drunk. And, and Peter answers them in this sermon. And he tells him what's going on. And Peter says, the people are not drunk. Peter says, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is fulfillment of what the prophet Joel had said. And just like Isaiah, the prophet Joel was prophesying about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Peter then proceeds to tell the people about Jesus. He tells them how Jesus is the Messiah, how he fulfilled the Old Testament messianic prophecies. And then he tells them that they're guilty. He says, you are guilty for crucifying the Son of God, for crucifying the Messiah. And then in verse 37 of Acts, and this is what we read in our, what Hal read for us in our New Testament reading of of Acts chapter 2, it says that after hearing Peter's sermon, it says they were cut to the heart. See, basically they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit got their attention. They knew they were guilty before God. And God, by his grace, gets their attention. And they know they're in trouble, and they needed to do something. And the text says, they said to Peter and the disciples, what shall we do? They're pleading, what shall we do? They're desperate. They know they're in trouble. They need to have answers. And what does Peter tell them? Take a look at verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then here's the key part. Verse 39, it says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. See, this is our connection. This is our connection with Isaiah 44 passage. This promise is given to the New Testament church. This promise is given to us. 
And this is our application of, of Isaiah 44, 1 through 5. This hope that we have, this hope that, that we cling to as Christian parents and Christian grandparents for the future of Christ's church. This is our hope that this promise is given to us and to our children. So let's, let's walk through Peter's response here in these, in these two verses here. And let's see what he's saying and, and, and how we can apply these promises to us and to our children and to our grandchildren. The question that Peter is answering is really, what do I need to do to be right with God? What do I need to do to be saved? And in his answer, Peter gives two components of what must be done. And there's an internal component, that is, that is only visible to us and, and to God. And then there is an external component, which means it is visible to all. It is visible to the church. And then Peter gives the results of what is done in response to these two components. But it's important for us to realize that these two components, that these two components themselves, themselves are a response to something that God does first. See, God takes the initiative. And these two components, these are really the natural response of God's effectual calling upon his elect, his regeneration, his calling sinners to himself. This is done totally of God. We are completely passive in this. And these two components that we're looking at, they always come from that. They're always a response, and they go together. They are a natural response to what God does. So let's look at these two components one at a time. <clears throat> the first component is repent. So this is the internal component. In response to God's effectual call, in response to God's regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and in response to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, the sinner is convicted of his sin, and he is driven to repentance in, by faith in Christ. You see... Repentance and faith always go together. They're not different things. They're, they're basically different sides of the same coin. Uh, repentance is, is, a, is a pulling away, a turning away from sin. And a faith is a, is a clinging to Christ, turning toward Christ. So they always go together. Turning toward Christ, turning to the gospel. And we, we, we can't have one without the other. So this is the internal component. This is faith. This is faith and repentance. The second component is be baptized. Be baptized. And this is the external component. See, baptism is the, the visible sign. It is a visible sign that the Christian is set apart for God. It is a sign that we are in a covenant with God. We are in a new covenant with God. And just like the Old Testament people, they were, they were sanctified. They were set apart from God. As New Testament people, we are sanctified. We are set apart from God. So the New Testament people take the sign. The sign of the, for the old, old covenant was circumcision. The sign of the New Covenant is baptism. And when a sinner, a sinner who is outside the new covenant, when he is regenerated by grace alone, he's convicted of his sin and he repents and by faith alone, he receives and rests upon Jesus Christ alone, he is then to be baptized. He takes on this sign of baptism and becomes a member in the new covenant community. And God's response to these components, this repent and be baptized, is listed in the second part of the verse. He forgives our sins. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And the basis of the forgiveness and giving the Holy Spirit, this is not our repentance. We don't get it because of our repentance. We don't get it because of our baptism. We get it because of God's regeneration. He regenerated us. And the natural result of this regeneration is repentance, is faith. And the natural result of this faith and repentance is a desire to be obedient to God and to, to take the sign of the covenant and to be baptized. Now, as far as timing goes... Regeneration, repentance, faith, forgiveness of sins, receiving the Holy Spirit, these all happen instantaneously. They all happen simultaneously. 
See, once the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, all those other things happen to them instantaneously. They all happen together. What we, what we said in our confession about adoption, that happens at well at that time when we are regenerated. Now, baptism, on the other hand, will not happen instantaneously, as, as with regeneration and repentance. It will either happen after, which is the case of the people responding during the Peter's sermon at Pentecost. They were, they were converted. They repented. They believed. But they weren't immediately baptized. It was after. Or it could happen before, before regeneration, as in the case with covenant children. And these children are members of the new covenant, and not based on their own faith, but based on the faith of their parents. And thus they are given the sign of the covenant. And verse 39 says that the promise is given to you and your children. So what is this promise? It's the promise of verse 38. It's forgiveness of sins, receiving the Holy Spirit. And these promises, forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit, along with repentance and faith, these are signs of regeneration. So the promise that's given here, and this is the amazing part, is the promise of regeneration. It's given to believers and their children. Do you see see how amazing this is? For believers, right, they're already regenerate so because they're believers. But the amazing thing is that this promise is given both to believers and the children of believers. The promise is for you and your children. In other words, our trust is solely on God, both for our salvation and for the salvation of our children. And do you see how incredibly comforting this promise is? See, we don't need to worry about these statistics that we read. We don't need to worry about these trends or or horror stories about children falling away. We trust God. We cling to his promises. And we pray those promises. We pray those promises for our children. We pray for our grandchildren. We pray with God. We, we, We plead. We wrestle with God for those promises. Now, let me clarify what I'm saying here. So don't misunderstand. First, I'm not saying that we trust ourselves. I'm not saying that we trust our parenting to ensure that our children are saved. Because I can guarantee you, even the, the best parents, even the most sanctified parents, often make mistakes. They'll do things to push their children away from Christ. They'll act in a way that's hypocritical, not consistent with their profession. See, if we trust in, in, our, in ourselves and our parenting, we will fail. We're not up to the task. Now, this doesn't mean that we're hands-off. No doesn't mean that we allow our children to do and act however they want absolutely not we are accountable to god we are accountable god to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the lord we are to teach our children about god we are to bring them to church we are to guard and protect them from the wolves that are out there that are seeking to destroy them to devour them and we are to use wisdom in limiting exposure to the world to them and the most important thing we are to do is to model faith We are to model for them faith. We are to strive to live consistently as possible with what we profess, what we profess to believe. Which means if we want children, if we want faith to be important to our children, it better be important to us. So we should be faithful parents. But our trust for our children's salvation is in God and his promises. It's not in ourselves. So that's the first thing we're saying. The second thing we're saying is we're not trust is not in our children. It's not in children in, in their actions. It's not in their temperaments. It's not in their decisions. We don't trust the decision that they made or a profession of faith that they have made. See, children are often influenced by their parents, and many will proclaim a faith that's not really theirs <clears throat> simply to please their parents. And yes, we should encourage professions of faith. We should take joy in them. But our trust is in God. It's in his promises, not in our children. 
That's the second thing. Third, I'm not saying that our trust is in our children's baptism or in their membership in the new, in the new covenant. Yes, they should receive the sign of baptism. Yes, they should be sign of the covenant. But the sign is not magical. The sign does not save them. The sign does not, it shouldn't be given in a superstitious way that if they don't have it, we're afraid that if something happens to them, that they won't be able to go to heaven. No. And also, children of unbelievers, they are not members of the new covenant. They should not receive the sign of baptism. So if parents are not believers, they should not have their child baptized. But nevertheless, we trust in God. We trust his promises for our children's security, not their baptism. But that said, we can be confident in God's promise to regenerate our covenant children. Not going to already hear objections. Some of you may be thinking these right now. What about the statistics that you cited? What about the decline in Christianity? What about the people you know whose children have fallen away and not walking with the Lord? It certainly appears that this is not guaranteed. Well, let me give you three basic answers to this objection. Three different types of people. First, not every parent, not every person in that survey back in 1970 who identified as a Christian is actually regenerate, has repented of and has faith in Jesus, saving faith. See, the promise that we have in Scripture is to believers, not to false believers, not to professing believers. And personally, I believe this is a council majority of the people we see falling away in these statistics. I don't really think the percentage of truly born-again Christians is any different today than it was 50 years ago or any time in the past. What we're seeing in these statistics is fewer cultural Christians, fewer people who identify as Christians, but were never, ever converted. Never had saving faith. See, they only identified as Christians because the culture in the past was more favorable toward Christianity. In the past, there was social capital. Good people went to church. Good people claimed to be Christian. I mean, just look at all the presidents. Every president we had claims to be a Christian. Do you think all of the presidents we had have been Christian? I doubt very few of them probably have been Christians, just basing on some of their behaviors. But in the past, there was social capital with being a Christian. But not anymore. Not anymore. Today, there is no worldly benefit to identifying as a Christian. And as we are rapidly heading, I think, to a point where there's actually a, 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 a social cost, social negative, social harm to identifying as a Christian. So this, is, I think, is the reason for these plunging statistics that we see. And the children of these false believers, they recognize. They recognize the hypocrisy. They know their parents don't believe what they're saying. They know their parents are just going through the motions. And they're turned off by the phoniness of their parents' supposed faith. And seeing no social benefit of this false faith, the children rightly reject this cultural and liberal and Christianity of their parents. Now, for parents who are in this category, if there are any parents who are in this category, your only application is to repent and believe. You need to come to Christ. You need to be saved yourself. You need to come to him as he's offered in the gospel. It's kind of like, I'm sorry, when you're flying, remember when the, the flight attendants give the, the, the safety spiel and they say if the cabin loses pressure and the oxygen mask come down and you're traveling with small children, what do they say to do first? You put the mask on yourself before you put it on your children. And why do you do that? Because you put the mask on your children first. You can't help your children if you pass out from lack of oxygen. Well, it's the same with this. We can't help our, if we don't know Christ, we can't help our children to know Christ. So we can't, we can't, uh, we can't uh, help them if we don't know Christ. So that, that is our application. This is the first category. And I believe this is the majority of the cases of, of children falling away from faith. But this is not the only category. We all personally know personally solid born-again Christians 
whose children are not walking with the Lord. What about them? We know that they're solid. Well, this brings us to the second answer. And second, for those parents who are born again, who truly know the Lord, but their, their children are not walking with the Lord, I'd ask them to ask and ask ourselves this hard question. On what do we rest our hope for our children? On what do we rest our hope for our children? Is it on one of these things we looked at? Is it on the way we raised them, our good parenting? Is it on their baptism as an infant? Is it on their confession of faith? Is it on, are we trusting on our ability to, to convince them, to argue them, to nag them into the kingdom? See, just like our own salvation, see, if we're, if we're trusting anything other than Christ, we have a false assurance. Our salvation is in Christ. Lord, if, I'm, if I'm trusting my church work membership, I'm trusting my good works, I'm trusting that I'm a pastor, this will not save me. I must trust on Christ alone. Our salvation is based solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Likewise, if we are trusting our hope for our children's salvation on anything other than Christ, it is a false hope. So for people in this situation, the application is simple. Trust in Christ. Trust in his promise. Promise that of regeneration for us and for our children. And pray these promises. Pray to, for, to him for our children. Wrestle with God in prayer, tenaciously clinging to these promises that he will bring them to faith. And this brings us then to the third answer. The third answer is for those who are doing just this, who are trusting God's promises for their children, who are, who are truly born-again believers and who are doggedly clinging to these promises, even with, when there's no evidence of openness to their children. I think, people, I think of my friend John Bolt, who's Nathan's father, who is faithfully praying for his eldest son, who is far from Christ. And for these people, I say, wait. See, God's timing is not our timing. Keep trusting his promise, and he will answer. It may not be in a, even in our lifetime. I was just thinking of, of Lynn's uncle, who was far from God. And his, his mother was a strong believer, probably praying for him. But she never see or saw him come to faith in this life. But afterwards, years after she had passed away, he came to saving faith. We don't know when it's going to be, but just trust in the Lord. And really, this is, this is the application for all of us. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his promises, his promises for us and for our children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, the, the amazing promises that we see in your word. We, we are overwhelmed of this promise. And Father, I pray for, as a parent, as a grandparent, I pray for all the parents here. I pray for all the, the, the people who, who know children who are raised in the church by faithful parents and who are not walking with you, Lord. I pray that you will give them the faith, give them the confidence to trust in you. And Lord, I pray that you will amaze each one of us as you change, as those who seem far are brought back in, brought back into the fold. And Lord, you are amazing and you will get all the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.